Um, so I, I want to start off by, by just greet, greeting you all um, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we are from Benoni, at the heart of the Tapper Triangle. So I've traveled quite far to be here tonight, but we are involved in a little Presbyterian church there. And my family and I are always so glad and honored to be part of the, of the um, proceedings here at Dialuach. So thank you for inviting us. Um, <clears throat> so as you heard, it's Marianne and I's 12th wedding anniversary today. Um, so, yeah, and it's been fantastic, I can tell you that much. And next week, I'm just a warm-up act, right? So I'm the, I'm the opening act, and next week you'll meet Marianne, and she's going to speak to you next week in the morning and the evening service. I think as our children have started growing up a little bit, they're still very young, uh, we, have, we have started understanding the importance of parenthood, but also apologetics within parenthood. How do we teach our children to think in the world as it is today? And to think Christianly, but not by doing that, switching off their brains, actually the opposite, switching them on. So you can look forward to next week. I know if, Marianne, if you're listening, I'm not sure if, you, if you're streaming this, but if you are, I know you're very nervous, but um, we are all looking forward to hearing what you've got to say. And if you guys are listening, then I have to say hello to Tian and Annabelle as well, my kids who might be listening, I'm not sure. And then the family gets worse, you know. Uh, if you start inviting us in from Benoni, it gets really bad. I even brought my dad with me here. He's sitting here in front, so it's really nice to have him. And my sister's daughter is Nina over there, who's a, who's a part of Dialuach. So it's become a real family affair for us to be involved. So I'm almost done with my little paper. Um, so we get to the theme of tonight, and you'll see it's, I've changed the title slightly. I'm calling it, Is the Bible Fake News? And then the subheading says, finding a believable source in a time of skepticism. And then last night, actually this morning early, as I was waking up, my brain actually th thought about it, and the Holy Spirit probably helped me a little bit there, to say, it should probably say, is the Bible good news or fake news? And I think the important bit here to say right at the beginning is it has to be either or. If the Bible is fake news, it is no form of good news at all. Really, it isn't. And, and I'm going to show you that the Bible says that about itself. Now, I am going to have to tonight read a lot. And the reason is, the question, is the Bible fake news, is quite a technical question. There might be people studying theology in this room now. People study this for their lives. They really go into this in a lot of detail, and they spend a huge amount of time on it. I can't come and stand in front of you responsibly tonight and say that I, I have done all of these studies. My own studies are in a different direction, but I've read quite a bit on this, but therefore I'm going to have to use some experts, and I'm going to ask them to speak, and I'm sorry, I'm apologizing. I know you can all read, but I'm going to read most of those quotes myself, and the reason is just because this is being recorded in audio, I think it's important that people don't just see it there, and it will form part of what I'm going to say but it will be more than it usually is. And then the last two things before I actually start. Um, I think it's important to say that I'm not going to do a special pleading tonight. A special pleading means you ask to be treated differently from the rest. What I'm going to ask for tonight is that the New Testament specifically, and I'm going to focus on the New Testament. I'm not going to have time to discuss the Old Testament as well. You're going to find that just discussing the New Testament is going to be tough enough. But I'm not asking that the New Testament be treated differently than other ancient documents. What I'm going to ask you tonight is to consider treating it in the same way that ancient documents are treated wherever else they are treated. Because I think the New Testament is often treated differently, and we allow that 
and we don't even know that, and it's an important part of what I am going to argue tonight, that when we treat the New Testament as we treat all ancient documents, it looks very different to what we often read in the newspapers and see on the internet, right? And I'll, I'll, I'll try and motivate for that. And then lastly, what is at stake? What is at stake is the good news, the gospel. If the Bible is fake news, then in Paul's own words, which I'll come to in a little bit, everything Christians say they believe means nothing. And you'll see how hard Paul is on the Christians if what we believe is not true. It can be many things. It can be upsetting. It can be disturbing. It can be difficult to understand sometimes. But if it's not true, we are dead. And we should all stop coming together. Even if the coffee is good, we can have it somewhere else. We should not be meeting and singing as we did tonight and praying as we did tonight. And as, as our faith, as Christianity, we are bound to that question, and that is what is at stake. What is at stake is our faith in its totality. Is it something we should be believing? And, and I mean, we are living in a time of fake news. We, we all know it well. Um, I, I mean, COVID showed it very interestingly, how people are able to manipulate things. And, and I'm not even going to say who I think was manipulating, right? You can now make your own conclusions there. Because some people think this side were manipulating and others think that side were. But there were so many things that just showed us how fake news um, has come into this post-truth world, as it's often called. What does post-truth even mean? But let's not go there tonight. We can have another talk about post-modernism and relativism and truth. I think that's a different topic, an important one, but a different one. We even have deep fakes. If you don't know what a deep fake is, it's really entertaining. There's one of the Queen, I don't know if you've seen it, where they take the Queen and they deep fake the Queen. Okay, so I think it was last year for, for April Fool's Day they did it. Okay? So Google deep fake of Queen Elizabeth, and you can have a really good laugh. Okay? But a deep fake basically means they make somebody speak on a video and it's not the person speaking. And, and there's an example of Vladimir Putin where the guy on the left is speaking and they manipulate his face and his voice by using um, data from Putin to make it look like Putin speaking. Right? You can do that these days. And there are even apps where you can do a deep fake. You can become someone else. Right. Now, thankfully, the technology hasn't developed so far that we can't spot it. We can. But as, you, as you'll see if you go and watch a few deep fakes, it's become quite difficult. Right, so in this world, I think we've all become skeptical about truth and about our ability to know truth. I think we've become skeptic, skeptical about messaging because we have become aware of the fact that so much of it is a power play. People are trying to convince me. People are playing games. And therefore, I shouldn't trust them because they've got an agenda. Andre has an agenda, and I can say I do. I'm not even going to back away from that tonight. I've got an agenda, but if my agenda is not linked to the truth, you should take me out and not allow me back into Dialuach. I can tell you that much. Because there are agendas linked to what is true, and there are agendas that are linked to what is a lie. And I think in our own country, if you doubt that, you must just think of state capture. And you must go and read IOL. It's a media house. I hope I'm not insulting anybody. Go read IOL's articles about the truth of what's really going on in the world and compare it to what other news agencies are giving you. It's two stories that cannot both be true at the same time. It's impossible. And therefore, many of us have become skeptical. And we don't know what happened yesterday. 
What about 2,000 years ago? I mean, it's very difficult. If, I, if you ask me what I did yesterday, I can tell you, but I can't convince you completely. I can tell you what I did. I won't bore you with that, but, but it, it, it involved a children's party. Okay? And if you're a parent, you'll know. If you have to go to a children's party, it's gr- not that great. <laughs> it's really not. Because you meet many people you don't know at all, and you don't have anything to say with them, and the kids are playing, and then this one hit that one, and uh, you know, it's really not as much fun as it sounds. But, but, but I can tell you that, but how would I prove it? I said in the beginning, I'm not going to do a special pleading. So if we, go, if we, if we find it difficult to prove what happened yesterday, we must expect it to be slightly difficult to prove what happened 2,000 years ago. We must expect it to be slightly messy, and if we don't, we haven't even thought for one moment about our own knowledge of the past. And I think for many people, Psalm 40 sums up the feeling that we have when we think about truth. Because in the end, I think it feels to me sometimes like we're in a pit. Okay? So I think it's David writing Psalm 40. And he says in Psalm 40, in verse 2, he says, I'm not going to take the part of him being drawn up out of the pit. But what is his situation when this starts? He is in the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. I don't know what a miry bog is. We don't have many miry bogs in South Africa. But I think it's a pit with some mudded slime at the bottom. And your feet are sinking in, and it's very, um, very difficult to get up on the sides because it's slippery and slimy, and you can't get out of this. And as you're stepping, your feet keep sinking into gunk. And if that's not how you feel about the world we are living in today... I think you're staying away from the internet. Well done. Maybe that's good. But it does feel to me sometimes as if when it comes to knowledge and to truth, as if we are stuck in a miry bog, as if we are in a pit of destruction. Very difficult to find anything under our feet. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where your feet could not find footing, where your feet are struggling to just find a place to put down. It's not a very pleasant experience to have. And David speaks here of having that experience of being stuck in a miry pit. Now, how do we know anything from the past then? Because I am not skeptical about knowing stuff from the past. I'm not skeptical about what I did yesterday. I don't think I'm a brain in a vat. I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself as a brain. Have you watched? um, What's that movie where they're they're all stuck in those pods? Uh, That's suddenly slipped my mind. Um, What is The Matrix. If you watch The Matrix, their lives is basically all virtual reality. They are being used to power the, the machines, and they are in these little pods, the humans. They are power sources for the computers. And to keep them alive, they get this virtual reality experience. Okay. How do we know that it's not virtual reality? Because the fact is we don't act act as if we don't know the past. We don't hold people responsible as if we don't know the past. And I say to you, I don't want to do a special pleading for the Bible. I want you to treat it the same. We take people to court based on what happened in the past. We want them to be thrown in prison because of state capture, because what happened in the past. And if that is going to happen, it means for us to know what happened in the past, 
there are a few things that are required. The first one is to have credible witnesses, believable witnesses. In the State Capture Commission, as I was working, I tended to listen to it, and then you would hear this, I'm not going to name names, this person coming, you said this happened, and the other person come, no, it never happened, I don't know what they're talking about, I never, I wasn't there, you know, it was a Shabin, forgive me. Okay, now, when that starts happening, the question about the credibility of witnesses gets asked. Who do we believe? And if you looked, listen to Judge President Zondo, it was clear who he believed in this last report, right? He made specific calls as a judge about who he believed and who he didn't. Otherwise, you would never decide a court case. Credibility is something we can decide and we can know. We're getting very good at fact-checking. We're getting very good at finding out whether what people say is actually based on, on facts or not. And for me, when we start getting converging lines of evidence pulling together. We start getting to a point, and this is very important, where we have to start asking not whether we can doubt something, but whether our doubt is still reasonable. Can we know stuff beyond reasonable doubt? Judge Zondo made all of his calls based on reasonable doubt. Is your doubt still reasonable? And in a time of skepticism, it has become fashion to be skeptical. But is it still reasonable? And if it's not, our skepticism will not lead us any closer to truth, is what I'm going to argue, right? So the, 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 the point I have to make today is I have to answer the question, is it true beyond reasonable doubt that we can believe the New Testament? That's where I'm aiming at. And I'm going to have to do it very quickly, and I'm going to have to skip over things that, are, that, that many books have been written and university courses and doctorates have been written about, I'm obviously not going to go into any detail. I'm going to skim it, but I'm going to try and make the main points that I think are important. Okay, so let's start getting into what we have to deal with. Now, in our postmodern times, I don't know if you know it, but the Bible is actually quite tough on us as Christians. It, may, it links us very closely to history and to truth. Let's, let's, let's listen to Luke 1 in the New International Version, where Luke writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those, whom, uh, 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 those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly, orderly account for you, my most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know uh, the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Now, if you read what Luke is writing there, he is binding himself to eyewitnesses and to historical truth. He's claiming that what he's writing is really happened. I don't think there can be a lot of doubt in your mind if you read what Luke wrote there. Let's read Luke 2 verse 1. Luke 2 verse 1 says the following. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. That does sound like fiction, doesn't it? It sounds like history to me. He's trying to claim certain historical facts as he's writing this. He's even adding people's names. But it gets worse. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, and I, I've highlighted certain words there. Because I want you to see how Paul links us as Christians to the historicity of what we believe, if you are a Christian, right? So he says in 1 Corinthians 15, For I have received 
Uh, excuse me, let me start again. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried. Can you see he's speaking of the Scriptures? So he's saying there's a written account of this, the Scriptures, right? And he's also talking of the Old Testament being fulfilled, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Now he's naming a person. If Cephas or Peter is still alive, you can go and ask him. When this was written, if he was still alive, and Richard Balcom will, will argue that when he names him here, he's saying, basically, he's still around. Go and ask him. If you don't believe me, here's a name for you. Go and ask this guy. Okay? That's why he's naming him. And then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Why is he saying oh, most of whom are still living as I write this? He's basically inviting you to go and ask them. You know who they are. Go and ask them, okay? Um, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared also to, to me also, as to an abnormally born. Paul is saying that Jesus appeared to him personally. And then he continues. Now listen to the implications Listen to the words that he's using to say if what he's saying is not true. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is nah, not good, not very nice. No, useless. I don't know if you've ever been called useless, but it's not a nice thing to say. Paul is saying, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Now that's what, that's the, those are the stakes. Paul, are putting, Paul is putting these stakes up and he's saying, this is what it's about. Useless. Your faith is useless if Jesus hasn't, been, uh, hasn't, hasn't, been, hasn't risen. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses. He's basically saying, I would be a liar. If Jesus hasn't been ra raised, I'll be a liar about God, for, who, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him, but, but, if, but, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Nobody, there's nobody he can think of you should feel more sorry for than for people who are, call themselves Christians. Can you see how high Paul is putting the stakes here? He's basically saying that if it's not the truth, we are the people who should be most pitied on earth. There's nobody you should feel more sorry for. That's how high he's willing to put the stakes because he is, he is basically staking his belief on uh, 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 his faith on the truth of the gospel. Now, before I get into the six strands that I want to bind together to make a point about the, the believability or the truthfulness of the gospel, I just want to get one point out of the way, and this might be a bit of a laborious point. I'm going to do it quickly. But there is a tendency amongst the circles of people who study New Testament to speak of it as a myth. And they use the word in a very technical way, I understand that, or a romance, and they use words like that. 
Okay? And, it, and it comes from higher criticism, from the German higher criti critical school. This emerged very strongly and it's become very big. And if you study theology today, that's what you'll hear. They'll talk about myths and they'll talk about romances, etc. I've put two quotes of Rudolf Bultmann there because he was one of the leaders. I'm not going to bore you with what he says. But at the same time as Bultmann and his colleagues lived a guy called C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples Lewis, and one of my big heroes, except for my dad, the biggest influence on me spiritually in my life. And he was, a, he was a classic scholar. So he could read Greek, he could read all the classic languages, and he read the myths and things in those languages. He knew them by heart. And he was an atheist, right? He didn't believe in Jesus. When he became a Christian, he started reading the New Testament, and he read it in Greek and all the original languages. He understood literature. He may not have known a lot about other things when he started becoming a Christian, but he understood literature. And when Lewis became a Christian, he looked at what these people were saying, and then he was invited, by mistake, I think, <coughs> by the Oxford Theology faculty to speak to all the young theologians who were being taught to be theologians. And he and he, he entitled his talk, Fern Seed and Elephants. That's the title of his talk. It's, today it's available as an essay. If you haven't read it, I strongly recommend it. He starts off talking to these pastors, and he basically says to them, I've heard what is being said about the New Testament. Now, I'm going to let Lewis speak for himself. I know these are two long quotes. I apologize. But I can't beat the way that he says this, right? And in a very beautiful old English way, he he's insulting these people quite strongly. So ap apologies for that. But listen to what Lewis is saying. He's saying, first then, whatever these men may be as biblical critics, I distrust them as critics. They seem to me to lack literary judgment, to be imperceptive about the very quality of the text that they are reading. It sounds a strange charge to bring against men who have been steeped in those books all their lives. But that might just be the trouble. A man who has spent his youth and manhood in the minute study of New Testament texts and of no other people's studies of them, and of other people's studies of them, excuse me, Whose, literature, whose literary experiences of these texts lacks any, any standard of comparison. So what he's saying is, if you only read New Testament, and that's all, you don't know what classical texts look like. That's what he's saying. You don't know what a myth looks like. You've never read a myth. How would you know what it is, right? Um, of the um, a standard of comparison such as can only grow from a wide and deep and genial experience of literature in general is, I should think, very likely to miss the obvious things about them. That's where fern seed and elephants. He says they say they can see the fern seeds, but they can't see the elephant right in front of them. That's the point of the essay, right? Um, if he tells me that something in, in a gospel is a legend or a romance, I want to know how many legends and romances he has read. How well his palate is trained in detecting them by the flavor. Not how many years he has spent on that gospel. It's a very interesting point and I think a very good one. Because then he continues and he says the following. He says, I have been reading poems. Me, Clive Staples Lewis. I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them is like this. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Now Lewis is going to give his literary view of the New Testament. Either 
this is reportage, though it may no doubt contain errors. So he's saying either these people are reporting history, they could make mistakes in that, but they must be trying to report history, pretty close up to the facts, nearly as close as Boswell, or else some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. If it is untrue, it must be narrative of that kind. The reader who doesn't see that simply has not learned to read. What Lewis is saying, if you read the Gospels, the only type of, of reading you can do that is similar to that is modern novels, and they only start in about 1700. We have nothing before then. Either these four fishermen, uh, Jewish people, were able to write modern novels, or they were trying to write history. Those are your only two choices, according to Lewis. And then just to move on, thank you very much, Gior. I'm just going to move on to the next one, because it's not just Lewis who said this. We have Holly Ordway, who's an English professor and atheist who came to Christ. She wrote a book called Not God's Type. If you haven't read it, it's a really interesting read. And Holly says exactly the same. I'm just going to read the yellow bit. She says, so she talks about the fact that she has studied literature her whole life before she became a Christian. Now she's become a Christian. And then she says, none of these stylistic fingerprints appeared in the New Testament books. Now she's talking of fiction, right? None of that appeared in the New Testament books that I was reading. The Gospels had the ineffable texture of history with all the odd clarity of detail that comes when the author is recounting something so huge that even as he tells it, in other words, tells the story, he doesn't see all the implications. That's what Holly says when she write, reads the New Testament. It doesn't feel like fiction. It feels like somebody's overawed by history and trying to write it down for others so they may know. And then she says, I, It wasn't the promise of peace or joy or salvation that brought me to Christ, but the promise of truth. Wow, that is huge for somebody who was an atheist and had absolutely no reason for becoming a Christian. Go and read her story and you'll see what I mean when I say that. So, the Bible, I am claiming tonight, claims to be truthful. It's not fiction. It's trying to tell the truth. It may get some facts wrong. It's possible. I'm not saying it does, but it could. But it's trying to tell the truth. It's claiming specific things about Jesus and what he said. It's claiming specific things about us. And it's claiming specific things about history. And those are all testable. So let's have a look at the evidence. And this is where it's going to go fast. Right, so I said in the beginning, once we have converging lines of evidence, they start confirming each other. That's what happens in a court case as well. If we hear a story, but the forensics don't tell the same story, and the other evidence doesn't tell the same story, then we don't believe it, right? So I'm going to show you six lines of evidence very quickly. The longest of them will be two or three slides long. I'm going to take you through it very quickly. Six lines of evidence that I think give us a very convincing picture to show that what we have in the New Testament is reliable historical writing. Whether you like what is being said or not, that is irrelevant. Okay, that's not the question I'm trying to answer. So let's have a look at the evidence. Here is the first strand, the manuscripts. Okay. So we have manuscripts of the New Testament. We have fragments and we have documents of the New Testament from which we are able to go back into history, into older and older and older uh, documents to find 
what was written in the older versions of the New Testament. There is this popular story that says the older Bibles have been changed as we've gone on. And people even say that about translations. Also another day's story, right? We don't have time for it today. But let's have a look at the manuscripts. And I think the first important thing to say is that in biblical times, the printing press hadn't been invented yet. Not even a printer, no desktop printers, nothing of the sort, right? If you wanted to write something down, you needed papyrus or you needed some sort of vellum, a type of animal skin to write it down on, and you needed somebody who was able to write. You need both of those things. And therefore, writing uh, and documents were very rare. They weren't in, in every house. Not every house had a Bible. Not every house had a New Testament or an Old Testament. The Jews would fold up the books. They would roll them up and keep them at the, at the synagogue from where they would take them out and read them. You will even find that where Jesus gets handed the scroll of Isaiah and he reads it, or the, um, the, the guy from Ethiopia sits on his wagon and he's reading a scroll. That's how you read. People who had access to these documents were the rich and then they were maybe collected together. It wasn't something common. And therefore, when we work with these old documents, and when we go back a few years, they become more and more difficult to find. I had an experience recently. When I was at school, I wanted to, uh, I, uh, we read the book called Koning van Katoren, the King of Katoren, I don't know. It was actually a Dutch book, and it was very funny, okay? And I tried to get hold of this book. It was, it was in print in the 1990s, 2000 still. I cannot find one. I've now found one. But it, it was massively difficult to find a book that was in every Afrikaans school in this country. There were thousands of them in this country. I couldn't even find one. I looked for it. I googled it. I went to second-hand bookshops. I couldn't find it. It disappeared off the face of the earth. And that was in the time of the printing press with a book being read at school by hundreds, if not thousands, of children. So what should we expect when we look back in history, the further back we go, the fewest pieces we would find because fewer copies existed and they had have, have had more time to have been exposed to the elements and or other, other problematic things. So let's, let's just look at one quote here by Richard Balcom. And I've spoken about him before. He wrote a very interesting book, Jesus and Eyewitnesses. And the point Richard Balcom makes is a very important point when we look at these ancient documents. And I have actually made it before. I'm not going to read the quote. What he says is that when one reads an ancient document, you start with a hermeneutic of trust. Hermeneutic means way of understanding. You believe the document first. You don't start thinking that it's lying. As a witness, you should take an ancient document at face value and then go and fact check it. That's what he's saying. That's how old documents are treated. I said I'm not doing a special pleading. Richard Balcom is saying that if we're going to read the New Testament, old manuscripts, we should give it the benefit of the doubt for a start. And I think that's an important bit to remember if we're going to treat it like other ancient documents. So let's have a look at comparable ancient documents. This is just a table showing some ancient documents that are close to, uh, in terms of time to the New Testament. So we've got Caesar's writings, Plato's writings, Tukadides' writings, I don't know how to pronounce his name, maybe, you know, in South Africa there might be a click in there, I don't know, Tachycus, Suetonius, and Homer's Iliad. Those are all historical documents that were written around the time of, of, G, of the New Testament. So you'll see Caesar was written 100 to 44 B.C., Plato, and you'll see the dates going down. 
Then you've got the earliest fragment. Now, please remember that when we look at those documents, and I said no special pleading, right? When we look at those documents, historians treat them as good historical facts. Most of what we know about the ancient world comes from those documents. If you think Troy happened, where do you think we got it from? If you think some of Caesar's exploits happened, where do you think you're getting it from? Do you think you had Caesar's original? So we all have Caesar's book being passed over 3,000 years. No, we don't. We're using these documents. Now let's look how old they are. The earliest fragment copy. So if we just go there, I'm going to use my laser for once. That one over there, Caesar, the oldest, uh, the, 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 the newest one, the, 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 no, let me rephrase this, because old and new get difficult here. The one closest to the time of writing is in AD 900. It's a thousand years. The best copy we have for Caesar is a thousand years after it was purported to, be, to have been written. Please find me a classic scholar. Now, these days, it's getting fashionable to even doubt Caesar, right? Because, you know, in academia, we have to publish and we have to say new things. The fact is, historians have always treated Caesar and Plato and Tachydides and Tachycus and Suetonius and Homer, they've always treated them as good historians. The closest to the time we find there that we have a copy is 800 years for those two. 800 years after they were writing, written, we have copies. And the most copies we have of these works is 643. That's quite a good number of Homer's Iliad. So we actually have a very good sense of what Homer wrote. Very good sense. But classical historians trust all of these documents to teach us about classical history. Now, the next bit I'm going to show you is almost embarrassing. Because if we compare this to what we have on the New Testament, we see that the New Testament documents were written AD 40 to AD 100, mostly, approximately, plus or minus a few years. The earliest fragment we have starts at AD 125. I've actually seen that little document. Okay? It's, it's incredible to think of a piece of papyrus that was written less than 100 years after Jesus. Right? So we've got a, a, a fragment starting in AD 125. And then if we have, let's take all the fragments that are counted as ancient, we have more than 24,000 pieces of New Testament. Parts and pieces of New Testament, more than 24,000. When it comes to manuscripts, no ancient document comes close to what we have in the New Testament. F.F. F. Bruce, uh, a New Testament scholar, said it like this, the evidence for our New Testament writing is ever so much greater than the evidence for many writings of classical authors, the authenticity of which no one dreams to question. I said I'm not doing special pleading. Treat us the same. Treat the New Testament the same. And if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. Okay? It is a curious fact that historians have often been much readier to trust the New Testament than have many theologians. Okay? So there's F.F. Bruce. There's the first strand finished. Let's go to the second strand. Critical scholarship. You're going to be surprised that I'm going to use that. So from Boltman onwards, critical scholarship has grown. Critical scholarship means that we don't just trust the words, we're going to question them. We're going to try and figure out which parts were true, which parts were not, what was really said. Because when we look at the, at the manuscripts, we have to be honest enough to say that we've got different traditions. 
So there are different manuscript traditions. And you'll see those, those little pictures we have there show the three main traditions, the Alexandrian, the Western, and the Byzantine traditions, those three. And those blocks show you from when we have manuscripts. So the earliest manuscripts are Alexandrian, and then Western start quite early, and then they end, and then we've got Byzantine manuscripts. Those 24,000 manuscripts fall in one of those three categories. And the critical scholars became really good at helping us figure out when there are variant readings, which one is the correct reading. So they, for example, have the criterion of embarrassment is one of the criteria they used, where they say when, when something is written that would have been embarrassing. Okay, so for example, when Jesus gets arrested, one of his disciples runs away and he loses his clothes. Oopsie. Hopefully it wasn't Mark. We think it might have been. But, you know, that's quite embarrassing. Or when Jesus says he's going to rise again and you are too dumb to believe it. Uh, um, uh, what do you mean? Uh, what, what, what is he talking about? Everybody? Where is he going? You know? They sound quite dull, the disciples. Have you noticed that? And, and what they're saying is if these people made it up, they would never put the criterion of embarrassment in there. They would have written themselves as the heroes. That's what they say. And critical scholarship has helped us to figure out what the best possible texts are to show us what the original writers wrote because we don't have any original copies, not the very first copies. And we have now come to a point where I think we've got a very good sense. You will even see your newer Bibles have parts that are often printed in italics because, and they will say, if you read at the bottom, the earliest and best manuscripts do not contain these words. Because we are busy cleaning up the Bible. And I can tell you it sounds horrible. And when you read Bart Ehrman, you might think, you know, we're in a big mess. I know those are, sorry, you don't have to read those quotes. I'm just going to read one of them. There are three of them. One from F.F. Bruce, one from Gary Habermas. Both of them basically saying we have the Bible as it was written. Right? You don't have to believe it. But Lewis said it's not fiction. We've got many manuscripts. And Critical, um, 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 critical analysis has helped us actually identify what was actually written. Let's just take Bart D. Ehrman in his own words. Very big uh, criti criti critic of Christianity. He's not a Christian. He's against Christianity. Okay? But he says in the middle quote, In spite of these remarkable differences, after he's shown many of these differences, scholars are convinced that we can reconstruct the original words of the New Testament with reasonable, although not 100% accuracy. We've got the words as they were written, that I can tell you. Okay, strand three, that was the second strand. Here is the third strand I want to tie together, the can canon. So in other words, the books we have in the Bible. Many people say, oh, you know, it was, uh, you remember that guy what, who wrote that book? Yeah, it's a very good book, very entertaining. Um, what's his name again? Uh, the, the Da Vinci Code, yeah, yeah. Very entertaining book. If you haven't read it, it's a good read. But he basically says that Constantine decided what the canon would be. That's what he's saying, right? Now, when I found this little bit in 2 Peter, I read it by accident, and it just hit me in the face. Because the opposite to that story is that Christianity started creating a canon right from the beginning. Let's read what, what 2 Peter 3 says. It says, 2 Peter 3 verse 5. Now, Peter's writing, and he's saying, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote, you with the wisdom that God gave him. So he's saying Paul also wrote about this. Now he's going to critique Paul. Listen to this. He writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. I agree. I don't know if you read Paul, but yes, you've got it, Peter. He's not easy always. Which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Excuse me, the what scriptures? 
He's not saying as they do the scriptures. He's saying the other scriptures. What is he implying? Paul's writings is scripture. Even Peter is implying in his own letter, in your own New Testament, that he sees Paul's writing as scripture. Okay, so let's have a look at the development of this within the early church. And I know that's a lot of text. But from Justin Martyr in 110, he says, speaks of Sunday worship and he speaks of the memoirs of the apostles. And he also quotes the gospels and say, it is written. He uses the word, it is written, as one would use for, 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 for the scripture. Clement of Rome in 100 AD quotes 1 Corinthians and he uses it on par of, 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 as, he, as he would Old Testament writings. Irenaeus, 130-202 AD, has 21 of the 27 books of the New Testament listed already. Okay? One of the earliest extant lists of New Testament documents was found in the Muratorian fragment. The original document, they think, dates to about AD 170. Once again, 21 to 23, depends on how you count of the books of the New Testament are listed there. And then we continue, up to the point where Athanasius lists the whole New Testament. Okay? The canon was not decided by a bunch of people at some point with a, with, a, with a Caesar presiding over them, telling them what to do. It grew organically amongst the church as the writings of the eyewitnesses were collected. The, the earliest nearly complete copies, they're not fully complete, we have, come from a, between 300 and 350 where the whole thing was put together. Now, you can imagine that was difficult in the beginning. You must also remember that the church was being persecuted in many places. They were poor people in many areas. It wasn't easy for them to put a book together because these, these manuscripts would have been expensive. That's the third strand. Let's move to the fourth strand, the church fathers. Now, who are the church fathers? They are the people who wrote. They are after the apostles, the generation from right after the apostles who were church leaders and who wrote letters. <clears throat> you will not find them in your Bible. But these were very influential people who wrote letters copiously. They wrote hundreds of letters to the churches to encourage and teach them. So we have their writings. We've got massive amount, numbers of their writings. Now there are some legends when it comes to the church fathers, so you must be careful when you think about them. But I'm just going to read the second quote by Bart Ehrman once again, biblical critic, somebody who doesn't believe. Now, some people will say you can reconstruct the whole New Testament from the writings of the church fathers. And that's not quite true. And Ehrman's only point here is to say, and so in short, in theory, yes, the church fathers do quote most of the New Testament. This is before 350, well, 380. The church fathers who lived pre-Nicaea, these are the people, they quote almost the whole New Testament, right? Um, but could we reconstruct the New Testament from the writings? No, I'm afraid not. And I understand exactly what he's saying, and he's probably right. But what I'm telling you, and here is somebody who actually did an analysis. Let me just go to it. It's a bit of a technical analysis. This person took all the church father's work, loaded it onto a computer, and what he was looking for, if you read there, he's basically saying he was looking for real verses that, that comply exactly. This is before Nicaea and also small fragments of verses. He, he wasn't taking what, what, what would be called an allusion. In other words, a reference to a text or a part of a text that isn't really a fragment. It's a, it's a rephrasing of the text. He's only taking real verses here and fragments of verses. And when he counts that up in the first 350 years of Christianity, he finds that 86.2% of the Gospels can be found word by word in the Church Father's writing. The church fathers were already using it as scripture, writing to the churches. Of Paul's writing, 53.7% in his analysis. 
and uh, for the two together, 74.8%. For the other books, lower in, 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 his, in his counting. But the church fathers give us a massive overview in their writing. There, there are many documents um, uh, that they wrote, literally thousands of them. Okay, so the church fathers give us the New Testament and they can show us that it was seen as scripture and, and that, it, that we still have it very accurately today. Here is the fifth strand, the second last one. I'm almost done. Do we have reference to things happening in the, in the New Testament in extra-biblical sources? And the answer is yes. Now, it's difficult because history wasn't formally written. And remember, the, the, the Christian gospel happened in a backwater. It didn't happen in Rome, where everything that mattered happened at that point. It was happening in a little backwater province, in a little nonsense town over there. That's where it was happening. Okay? And still, and yet, now Josephus we have there was a Jewish historian. So we would expect him to have a chance of writing about Jesus. But the other historians are Romans, and they all write about this Christianity and Jesus very early on. In a, in, not rhyme, what is the history of rhyme? Sorry, I should have read Rome. Apologies for that. Tachicus, Tallus, Pliny the Younger, Josephus, just some of them. I'm going to give you two quotes. Now, I want to be upfront. Some of these quotes are being fought about by classic scholars. They don't believe everything in this quote is necessarily exactly what was written. They think there might have been some things put in by Christian scholars at a later point. But let's even accept that and just say that there are some references to Jesus in these writers. People want to say these days that Jesus never existed. It's become something. You can't believe it, but it's actually something. These old historians tell us about Jesus. Here are two quotes from them. Tachika says, Nero fastened the guilt, this is of the burning of Rome, on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus from whom their name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment, in other words, we've got it under control for now, again broke out not only in Judea, uh, the first source of the evil, but, also, but even in Rome. He's speaking of Christianity very, very early on as a historical fact. Josephus. Now, here is, people, people don't all accept, sorry, I, I didn't move on with both. Um, Josephus, people argue a little bit about whether he wrote these exact words, but let's just see as, it, as we have it today, and, and we could argue, there could be little sections in here that we could cut out, but he said, at about this time, there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. That, for example, one of the sections they think a scribe might have added, you know, if one can think of him as a man, that could sound like something one could add. Wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. When Pilate condemned him to, the to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. Right? So this is from ancient history. That's strand number five. Let's move to the last strand. And this is just one slide. Archaeology. Many people say when the New Testament speaks history, it talks nonsense about some of the historical facts. And it's very interesting to see how archaeology, for example, at some point they said there was never a guy like Pilate talking nonsense until they found this stone which refers to Pilate. Okay? Or Caiaphas was not the high priest. What nonsense is that until they find this ossuary that speaks about Caiaphas who was the high priest. Okay? These are just some examples of the archaeological finds over the, over the past years that have confirmed the historicity of the New Testament and its accuracy. Luke, who writes Luke and Acts, is a first-rate historian, I can tell you. 
You can go and check him out. He knew what he was doing when he was writing history. There is strand number six. So let's take these converging lines and say if these things, if we've got the manuscripts, if the Canaan is probably right, if the church fathers tell us uh, uh, the same thing that we heard elsewhere, if we have some external um, um, verification of what we say, and I can't even remember the other two right now, but if those six strands are converging and we were standing in this pit, I can tell you that at least possibly there could be some solid rock underneath your feet. This, this psalm, David continues, he says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard me my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. I think the New Testament is a rock in this age of post-truth world on which we can place our feet. I honestly think it is a place where we can find truth with a capital T. Not just in Jesus, but about his teachings about this world, about yourself, about what's wrong with this world and how, and how it can be fixed. I'm quickly moving to a close. What do we know from the New Testament? If these documents are then trustworthy, what do we know? We know more about the life of Jesus Christ than we know of any other ancient figure that has ever existed, and nobody can argue with that. There is no ancient figure for whom we have more detail than for Jesus Christ. If we treat him the same as other ancient figures, we should trust what we know about him. Whether we believe it or not, that's a different question. But we should trust the fact that we have accurate information about him. We know this from more accurate records than any other figure. These records were written by eyewitnesses and they were written very early on. We even have some external corroboration for some of the things that are claimed in the New Testament. There is very little actual evidence for the contrary, I can tell you. For people who have conspiracy theories and other claims, I think there is very little evidence. So if we then go back to 1 Corinthians 15, my second last slide before I pray, and then we can have some questions if there is still time. If we go back to 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul set himself up, he starts off by saying, For what I received, I passed on to you as the of first importance. We live in a time where it is getting difficult to know what are the really important things. At least Paul had a view on that, and he's going to tell us in 1 Corinthians 15, what are the things that are of first importance for us as Christians, testified by the New Testament? What is of first importance? Firstly, that Christ died for our sins. Paul didn't believe this in the beginning. Remember who's speaking here. Right? This wasn't uh, someone who had any vested interest in, in believing in Jesus. As a matter of fact, he messed up his whole life by believing in Jesus. It was the craziest thing he had ever done. Right? And Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared, and then he names many people to whom Jesus appeared, that he actually appeared to people who saw him as eyewitnesses. And then I added verse 17, because there is something else that I think we should add as a fifth thing. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. In other words, he died for our sins to save us from our sin. You are still in your sin if Christ hasn't been raised. That is what he is saying. That is the gospel. If you can only believe that, you don't have to get stuck in all the debates about whether it's, you know, how old the earth is and, and whether it's you choose or God chooses you. All of those debates, forget about them. 
for now. You can get into those later if you want to. But if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, that is what is of first importance. If you can put your trust in the historical man who said that he was more than a man, that he was also God, who came to live the life you should have lived, and me, when I say you, please don't think I'm not saying me, the life I should have lived, and who came to die the death I should have died, and you, that's Jesus. So that your sins, that you may not be in your sins any longer, that you may be saved. That is what we need in this post-truth time. To be reminded of the truth with a capital T. And his name is Jesus. And he came to save us from our sins. Last, I have to come back to Clive Staples Lewis. Because I think you can hear all of this and you have to do something with those facts. Probably my favorite quote from, from Lewis comes from, uh, let me just get it up there comes from mere Christianity. Because many people will say, right, we've got this story about Jesus. He was a good man. He was a good preacher. He was a good example. We should all try and live like him. We should read some of the stuff he said. And, you know, the stuff that's nasty comes from the old time. We can ignore it. But at least he was a good teacher. And then Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing. Isn't it nice when an English gentleman calls you a fool? <laughs> you know, it's like a slap. Okay? The really foolish thing that people often say about him, him being Jesus. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Right? Very popular to say that. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell and you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He, did not, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Right, let's just pray and then we can see if you have any questions. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, thank you that those of us who are Christians may place our feet on a rock. And those who are stuck in a miry bog, whatever that may mean, a slippery, slimy place, can look with their feet for a place of stability. Can put their feet on a rock. Can feel what it feels like to stand on a rock. Thank you that you are the rock. And that you've given us the New Testament as a believable, well-testified to source that we can believe beyond a reasonable doubt. Help us, Lord, to accept that you have lived in our place and died in our place. Help us to not remain in this miry bog and in our sin, but to, to accept the help that Psalm 40 speaks of. Lift us up in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. I ask this. Amen.